have the privilege and honor of reading God's Word today. We're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. God's Word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right. Well, we have two weeks left in the book of James. Wow, it is jam-packed in here. Goodness gracious. We're running out of seats. We might have to do something about that. Got seats up front. Um, I'm far enough back. I won't, I won't spit on you. You're safe. Um, two weeks left in, uh, in the book of James. And uh, if you've been here throughout this whole series or you've been here for maybe even just a part of it, you know that this whole book is all about what it looks like to have a real faith, to have a flourishing faith, to have an authentic faith so that we're not a bunch of hypocrites saying one thing and doing the other thing. It's meant to be a mirror that shows us what we really look like. Um, it's been a little painful, I'm not going not gonna to lie. Uh, it's been a little brutal, but the goal is to expose these blemishes that most of the time other people can see, but we can't see in ourselves, so that we can address them. It's meant to be a call to action so that we can not just see what's real, but, but, but the Spirit's strength and by His grace do something about it. Um, a lot of people, and this is something that we've seen over and over again, is a lot of people think they're Christians and aren't. A lot of people say they believe in God and talk like they're good with God, but in reality, they're not good with God. And James is really concerned about that. He was concerned about it in the first century, and we're concerned about it here and now as well. So James is trying to help us see where we really stand and call us to do something about it. Now, so far, everything that we have seen up until this point, or most of what we've seen up until this point, has really been about our actions. You know, don't just hear the word, but, but do the word. Uh, don't just say you have faith, but put your faith into practice. Don't just claim you believe in God, but prove that you believe in God with your tongue and with your money and with the way you approach the world and the way that you're, you're pursuing holiness. Prove it in the way that you treat the poor and, and how you don't show favoritism in the church and all of these different things. Faith without works is dead, as James would say, so get off your hands and get to work. That's basically been the, the majority of the book so far, right? Today, there's going to be a shift. And um, basically what the shift is going to be is James is going to go from being like a mirror that shows us what we look like on the outside to being like an x-ray to show us what we look like on the inside. Uh, he's shifting from uh, focusing on our actions and, and turning the attention onto our attitudes. Uh, you could say that he's shifting his attention from the practice of our hands to the posture of our hearts. And I mean, really, the whole book is dealing with our hearts because all of our actions flow out of our hearts. But today is going to be really significant. As the concert pianist uh, Arthur Rubinstein once put it, he said, you cannot play the piano well unless you're singing within you. You ever heard that before? You can't play the piano well unless you're singing within you. And James knows that real faith flows from the heart. Um, it doesn't just change the way we live, but it changes the way we feel. And so it produces this new song within us, and it's the song of Jesus. And then everywhere we go, that song just manifests itself in all kinds of good works. Today, the song that James is going to call us to really start singing in our hearts is the song of patience. It's a song of patience. In verse 7, in fact, here's just a quick synopsis. In verse 7, he says, be patient. Verse 8, he says, be patient and establish your hearts or firm up your hearts or dig in, in, in your hearts. In verse 9, 
do not grumble against each other, which is another way of saying, have a heart of patience toward each other. Verse 11, he says, be like Job. And the, I'm sorry, verse 10, he says, be like the prophets and suffer with patience. Verse 11, be like Job and endure with patience. So in these verses, he, he basically gives the same command five different times. Have an attitude of patience. And this means that the more you grow in your faith, and the more that I grow in my faith, the more there will be an inward posture of patience. And let me just say at the very outset, this is a big problem for me. Because I am not a patient person. Um, like this is probably the most challenging and convicting portion in the whole letter of James for me. Some of y'all thought last week was hard. Because last week was all about money. Last week was a breeze for me. Some of y'all thought like some of these other passages about worldliness were hard. Those were a breeze for me. I get to this passage and you're like, this is easy. And I'm like, this kills. I am not a patient person. It was manifested several times this past week. I, I think speed limits are great recommendations for people who have nowhere to go. <laughs> or grannies. Or who, I don't know. I don't know who drives slow. I... My leg starts to bounce, like if I'm in a meeting and it's dragging a little bit long, I'm like, get me out of this meeting. What am I still doing here? And if you, you, you've been in a meeting with me, you know, you, you watch my leg. Um, I interrupt people when they're talking because I feel like they're taking too long to get to the point. My, my motto is don't bore us, get to the chorus. Like, I don't, I don't need the pathway. I don't need the verse. Just get to the hook. Okay. That's all I care about. I struggle with this. I, I really do. I, I get annoyed uh, at, at people when they do things wrong, even though I do things wrong all the time. I get annoyed at people when they get in my way. Um, slow drivers, slow internet, slow lines, slow waiters, slow results, they all drive me crazy. I really struggle with patience. I have a problem with impatience. Anybody with me out there? Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate it. Now I don't feel alone. Now, of course, um, we live in a society and in a culture where, I mean, in general, we have a problem with patience. Uh, Hartman Rosa wrote a book a few years ago called Social Acceleration. He talks about the fact that all of us struggle with a degree of impatience because of how much everything has sped up in modern society. And, and, and we, we don't even feel that necessarily now, but if you kind of evaluate from where our great-great-great-great-grandparents were to where we are today, it's crazy. In fact, check this out. The speed of human movement from pre-modern times to now has increased by a factor of 100. The speed of communications has skyrocketed by a factor of 10 million. The speed of data transmission has soared by a factor of around 10 billion. And even our walking speed has increased by 10% since the 1990s. We're like constantly accelerating as a culture. 200 years ago, it would have taken our great, 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 great grandparents like years to cross the country most of them would have died from dysentery or like a pack of wolves. If you've ever played the Oregon Trail, you know dysentery is a real thing. <laughs> and, and they would be trying to figure out how to get their horse-drawn buggy across a river without drowning or losing their, all of their possessions. And now we can literally hop in a plane, sit on a chair in the sky and get there in five hours. But if we have a 20-minute delay, it's like the end of the world. You know, have you ever been on a plane before and you just experienced that miracle? You were up there with the birds. Somehow this happened. And, and you, you land and then you just have to sit there for 40 minutes. And it is just like, I'm, I'm, I'm live tweeting this thing, man. This is the worst day of my life. I cannot believe I had to wait here for 40 minutes, right? It's crazy. Man. So Hartman concludes it like this. He said, things that our great-great-great-grandparents would have found miraculously efficient now drive us around the bend. Patience is a virtue that has been vanquished by the Twitter age. This was so convicting to me and challenging for me this past week. Obviously, like I've already admitted, I really struggle with patience. But at the same time, I live in a culture where a lot of us struggle with patience and where the struggle isn't even viewed as a big deal. 
In fact, we live in a culture that encourages impatience. And so I, I go through my life with this, like, oh, yeah, I struggle with patience. It's an acceptable sin for me. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, actually. Like, this is my, I get to confess to the elders I'm struggling with impatience, you know, this week. And I don't feel that bad. And then I get to James 5, and, and he says it over and over and over again about having an attitude of patience. And he's like, behold, the judge is at the door. And he's going to judge you for your impatience. It's unacceptable to him. It's really, really convicted. It's killed me all week. Killed me Friday when I lost my patience. Killed me yesterday when I was beating myself up about having to preach today after losing my patience. I struggle with this. So I would say, yeah, I know it's a fruit of the Spirit. I know I should aspire to be patient. But the irony of Ben Davey is that the one thing I'm patient about is growing in patience. <laughs> it's a slow ride. It's okay. James is going to show us today, we Christians should be the kind of people who carry the song of patience everywhere we go, even in our Twitter age, even in a culture that glorifies impatience. Because not only is it one of the most important marks of true faith, because it is, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, so you know if the Spirit's in you, if you're growing in patience, so it's a mark of true faith, but it's also one of the most important ways that we show the unbelieving world around us that there's something new inside of us, that there's something transformed about us, that there's something even supernatural that has happened to us. So that when they look at us, they're like, what's, why? And then we're able to point them to Jesus. So it's absolutely vital. It's not a small thing. It's not something that can be put off until tomorrow or shrugged off because everyone deals with it. It is a defining mark of a spirit-filled life. If we are growing in our faith, we'll be growing in patience. So that's what we're going to see today. We're going to do two things. First, I need to show you what patience is. What does it mean to be a patient person? And then second, when, once we're all really feeling bad about the fact that we're not patient, I'm going to show you three ways that we can cultivate this spirit, this posture of patience in our hearts. And so it's going to be all about Jesus. So first... Let's get depressed. What is patience? In the original language, the word for patience is macrothumos, which is a combination of two words. Macro, which means long. Thumos, which means anger. So it literally means it takes a long time for you to get angry. That's what patience means. To put it another way, patience is suffering without retaliation. Patience is suffering without retaliation. When someone cuts you off on the road, you don't retaliate. You don't lash out with your horn or with your finger. You suffer the offense. You suffer the slight without retaliating. That's patience. Patience is when your waiter gets your order wrong and you don't lay into that person. You suffer. You go through the irritation of, of, of this failed job. Why, don't, why didn't you just write it down? I knew you were going to forget it. You're not impressing me. Just write it down. I don't care if you're like, if you think you can remember this, just can you please write it down? No, you, you just, you just, you, you endure it and you don't say anything about it. That's patience. When your boss gives the promotion that you deserve to someone else, you, you endure that slight, you suffer that roadblock in your career without sarcasm, without grumbling, without complaining. James says, don't grumble and complain against one another. You do that. That's patience. Your kids are doing the exact opposite of everything you've been telling them to do since the moment they were born. <laughs> and somehow you manage not to raise your tone, your voice. You, your tone is gentle. You're kind. That's patience. When your spouse gets on your nerves, you don't make a sarcastic comment. You don't start an argument. That's patience. I'm not. This is what I failed to do on Friday, by the way. Caroline is very patient. I'm not. I'm trying to learn from her. Patience is the ability to endure all kinds of offenses and all kinds of annoyances and all kinds of roadblocks and frustrations without lashing out. The moment you lash out is the moment that your fuse runs out. It is the, that is the moment where you realize my patience was long up until this point. The straw broke the camel's back. That was the final straw, and now I'm just going to explode. That's impatience. 
And so patience is just going longer and longer and longer and longer and longer, and you, you never retaliate, you never lash out. I heard a, a story a while back about a man and a woman who'd been married for 60 years, which is incredible. I mean, that's a feat. That's, that's awesome. Throughout their marriage, uh, they shared everything with each other, and they had no secrets from each other except that the little old lady had a, a shoebox in her closet. And she had told her husband, you're not allowed to open that shoebox. You're not allowed to ask me about that shoebox. You're not allowed to talk about that shoebox. And he's like, all right, whatever. It's a shoebox. Not worried about it. Sixty years into this marriage, she's uh, diagnosed with a, uh, uh, an illness that's going to lead to her death. She's in the hospital. She's dying. And so the husband's going through all of her affairs, and he remembers, oh, there's that random shoebox up there. I should, I should probably get that down and see if like, we can talk through this, this mystery. And so he brings it to her bed. And she's like, yes, now's the time. Open the shoebox. And so she opens the shoebox, and there are two dolls that have been crocheted, and there's a stack of $95,000. And he's like, uh, so yeah, what, what, what's this? <laughs> and, um, and she's like, well, listen, when we were getting married, my grandma told me the secret to a happy marriage is to never argue, which isn't true. I, I mean, argue, right, fair, kind, whatever. Like, disagree, it's okay. But she was told you don't do that. She said, I was told never to argue, and so anytime I disagreed with you, my grandma told me I should, I should make a crochet doll. And in that moment, this man was like really moved, almost to tears, because he's literally like, there are, there are only two dolls in here. Like, there have only been two times in 60 years that you've disagreed with me, and you've had to hold your tongue and watch what you were saying, and He's like about to explode with happiness and then he looks at his wife and he's like, but what about this money? And she's like, that's the money from selling all the dolls. <laughs> we would say, you know, we would look at her and be like, wow, that's patience, you know. I, I tell that story because it's funny because in a lot of ways it is patience, but then when you get a little bit deeper, you have to ask the question, is that patience? You see, I think most of us think about patience in terms of not lashing out with our tongues since so we bite them or we make dolls. Or we think about if somebody offends me on the road, I'm not going to lash out with my hands. At least I hope you won't. That's not going to end well. Uh, maybe you're on the, on the road and you're thinking, okay, if someone cuts me off, I'm not going to lash out with my horn or whatever. Um, and that's true. So we think, though, as, as long as we're not lashing out in ways that can be felt or heard, then we're patient. We're doing a good job. But what if I were to tell you, what if James were to tell you that that's only half the battle? And that retaliation goes much deeper than what can be felt or, or heard. That retaliation um, is, is more about the posture of your heart than it is the words that come out of your mouth. And this is where it gets really discouraging for me. You might not ever hit an annoying coworker, but you can hate that person in your heart. You might not ever cut someone down with your words or cut someone off on the road, but you can grumble and complain about them in your mind. Listen to this. Real patience isn't just about enduring suffering without lashing out with our hands. It is about enduring suffering without lashing out with our hearts as well. And, and that's hard with people, and it's even hard because our hearts are deceptive, and we probably think, I don't really struggle with that that much. Um, but what about with God? Because one of the things that we see in James chapter 5 is that patience with people flows out of patience with God. He starts with patience with God, and then he moves to patience with people. Patience isn't mainly an action. Patience is mainly an attitude. Patience is about having a spirit of, of compassion rather than a spirit of contempt. It's about having a heart of gratitude rather than a heart of grumbling. At its core, patience isn't just about saying the right words to people. Patience is ultimately about surrendering our wills to God. That's what patience is. Patience with God leads to patience with people. Patience to with God leads to patience in trials. Patience with God leads to patience in the midst of delayed gratification and unanswered prayer and suffering and trials that we might face in our lives. 
This is what I really want you to see. This is what has been so challenging for me this past week as I've been studying this. Impatience in any situation is ultimately impatience with God. This is why the judge is at the door. This is why it's a big deal. This is why it's no small thing. Who's the one who has you in your current situation that's driving you mad? Well, if you believe that God's sovereign, it's God. Who's the one who's allowing the trials? Who's the one who's delaying your gratification? Who's the one who's holding the things back that you think you need more than anything? Who's the one who's answering your prayers with a not right now? Who's the one who's keeping you from climbing the ladder? And who's the one who's letting the enemy attack you? And who's the one who's refusing to take away your pain? Who's the one who's refusing to heal you of your anxiety? Who's the one who is allowing you to go through what you're going through right now? that's causing your struggle with impatience. It's him. And so any struggle with impatience is ultimately a struggle with impatience with God who's in control of all things, including your life. And so it's no small thing to struggle with impatience, is it? Patience with God leads to patience with everyone else. Patience with God leads to patience in the trial and the affliction and the unanswered prayer and the delayed gratification. So the big question we have to ask ourselves today is, are we patient with God? Isn't that a, isn't that a wild question to even contemplate? Are you patient with God? That involves more than words. That involves our will. You see, when we suffer a loss, and, and all of us have suffered loss, and if, you, if, you, if it hasn't been recent, man, I mean, goodness. It's hard to suffer loss. When our gratification is delayed, when things don't go according to our plan, we might not curse God with our tongues, but we can complain about him in our hearts. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, that's impatience with God. A complaining heart is a rebellious heart. A grumbling heart is an adulterous heart. An impatient heart is an unbelieving heart. I know that because of the Old Testament. Because the people of Israel, if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you've read about the people of Israel, they were constantly grumbling and constantly complaining, whether it was with their tongues or in their hearts. And that just led to rebellion. And it led to adultery. And it led to chasing false utopias and false gods and everything apart from him. And so impatience with God is not a small thing. It actually leads to every bad thing. In fact, the reason we sin is more often than not because we don't like the way God's doing things in our lives. We're impatient with him, and we're going to try to figure it out on our own. It's no small thing. It's not just how we feel about the people and the problems in our lives. It's how we feel about the God who permits them to be in our lives in the first place. Have you ever been in a situation where God's schedule and your schedule are at odds? Have you ever been in a situation where God's ways and your ways are not the same and you feel it? Where his thoughts and your thoughts are like in two different directions? Of course you have. Some of you thought you would have had a spouse by now. Some of you thought you would have had some kids by now or a promotion by now or some friends by now. Some of you thought that You've been going through this heartache, you would be relieved by now. Some of you thought you've been struggling with your health, you'd be healed by now. God's schedule and your schedule are at odds. What's your response in that moment? This is what James wants to ask us. Do you suffer without retaliating? Or do you wallow, do you whine, do you grumble, complain, disbelieve, and rebel in your heart? You might not lash out with your words, but real patience is deeper than our words. That means we don't lash out with our wills either. Look at how Tim Keller put it. He said, self-pity is lashing out with the heart. A patient person deals with delayed gratification by not lashing out with the hand, with the tongue, with the heart, or with the will, and is willing to submit to God's schedule even though you should have had a raise by now, but you don't. You should be healthy by now, but you're still sick. You should be married by now, but you're still single. You see, patience 
is so much more than just not yelling at God when things don't go your way. It's about going through suffering with a spirit of gratitude rather than a spirit of grumbling. So, anyone struggle with patience? Yeah. All right. So the big question now is how in the world are we supposed to cultivate hearts of patience? At least that's my question. James shows us three things in this passage. We're going to walk through them together. First, we cultivate patient hearts by reminding them that God's process always produces fruit. Look back at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the the late rains. The whole point of this analogy is to show that there's a process when it comes to sowing seed. There's a process when it comes to harvesting the fruit. And the only way to enjoy the fruit is to submit to that process. In the first century, and and it's still true to this day in Palestine, there was the, the, the fall rains, the early rains, which are October and November. And those rains would come, and when those rains came, the ground was soft enough for you to put seed into the dirt. If you, if you put seed into the ground before those rains came, nothing happens. And then there would be the late rains, which was in, in, in spring. And then the temptation there would be like, the rains are never going to come. The rains are never going to come. Why is it so hot? Why is there a drought? The rains are never going to come. I need to just go pick that harvest because I don't think the rains are ever going to come. If you do that, then you only get a small portion of the harvest that you would get if you wait for the rain. And so you wait for the rain at the beginning, you put the seed in the ground, and then you wait again. And you have to submit to that process if you want the fruit, if you want to reap the harvest. That's what James is saying here. Now, patience in the waiting was possible for those farmers because they knew what that process was going to produce. They knew, he he says, the precious fruit. It was their life. It was their livelihood. It was what they were going to provide for their families. It was their income. All of this, the precious fruit. They knew that the process was going to produce something precious to them, something valuable to them. And since they knew that, they could be patient. What James is saying here is, listen, if you want to cultivate patient hearts, if you want to be able to suffer without retaliation, you have to understand that hardship is producing a harvest, that this process is developing something in you that is precious, that is valuable, that will not happen unless you submit to the process. The moment that you just are like, I I, I can't see how this is going to work, I don't think the rain is coming. I got to try to do things my own way is the moment that you take yourself out of this hardship, but you're not really taking yourself out of it, but you're now, you're limiting the harvest that God wants to, to reap in your life. Complaining hearts only see what's going on in the moment. Patient hearts see through the moment to the end that it's producing. So let me ask you a question. How, how do you look at your your trials, can you see through them or do you just see them? Romans 5, 3 says, tribulation produces perseverance. Philippians 3 says, the fellowship of suffering leads to a deeper experience of the joy of Christ's presence and the power of his resurrection. Adversity is the process through which God develops your character and deepens faith and increases your experience and your enjoyment of his presence in your life. Adversity is the process. I think about Johnny Erickson Tata. I think she is a perfect example of this. And if you don't know who who Johnny is. She, um, she's written many books. She, she's got a, a global ministry. She has um, all kinds of incredible uh, things that God has accomplished through her, and she is paralyzed from the neck down. And the thing about Johnny is that she wasn't always paralyzed. She was 17. It was in the 1960s. She was at a pool party. She dove into the pool, and it was too shallow. She shouldn't have dove in, and she was paralyzed ever since. 17-year-old, dreams dashed, Goals dashed, ambitions dashed for her life as a 17-year-old. 
And as you would imagine, I mean, she was just like flung into an intense depression. Like, how could you not be? Life is basically over. Life as you knew it is over at that point. All of her hopes and dreams and prospects gone. And yet, thankfully, she didn't stay in that deep depression. She started reading her Bible with a new zeal. People were praying for her. She was praying. Obviously, she's trying to find out who this God is who could allow such a terrible thing to happen to her. And this is the really incredible thing. In the process of searching and praying, she found God. She didn't just find out who God was or what he was like. She found God experientially, intimately. She didn't just get theological answers. As she describes it, she felt his embrace in her life. Later on, she wrote, God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer I feel his embrace. The harvest of suffering, the end result of delayed gratification, the fruit of trials is perseverance. But it is more than perseverance. It is a deeper experience and enjoyment of the presence and the power and the love of God himself. You don't get the harvest without the hardship. That's why Paul said, I long to know the fellowship of the suffering. Because if I, if I know the fellowship of the suffering, I'm going to get the power of the resurrection. We want the power of the resurrection. What Paul is saying is you don't this, the power. You don't get the intimacy. You don't get the experience without the suffering. That's the process. And the moment we try to take ourselves out of it is the moment we miss the harvest. So if we want to cultivate patient hearts, we need to remind ourselves of this. This process that he has you in right now, if you're struggling, if you're going through a trial, is painful. But it is meant to draw you closer to him. And, and some of us, if you, I mean, you got two choices that you have to make when you go through a trial. You either let it drive you away from God, which is the opposite of his purpose, or you let it accomplish its purpose and produce this harvest in you and let it drive you to God. As, as Charles Spurgeon once said, he's like, I have learned to kiss the waves that crash me up against the rock of ages. And some of you are going through waves right now and you're just getting tossed to and fro and God is giving you those waves so they will pummel you into himself. And so you have to let him do that. Remind yourself that there is fruit and it's precious, it's valuable. This process is producing. That's the first thing James wants us to see. It's really closely connected to the second one. Second one is the fact that God's plan is always accomplished for his glory and our good. I think one of the biggest reasons that we have such a hard time being patient with God, we have such a hard time looking through the pain of the process to the fruit of the process is because more often than not, the fruit doesn't look anything like fruit on the surface. When you're going through trials, when you're going through affliction, it looks and it feels like you're asking God for bread and he's giving you rocks. It looks and it feels like you're asking God for some fish and he's giving you a serpent. It does not look like fruit. When you're going through the cave, it's a tunnel, but you can't see a light. You don't see any end through that pain. All you see is darkness. And you're like, what? Well, that first point's great. That's like, that's easy if you can see the treasure. But I don't see how any treasure's coming out of this. This is evil, what's happening to me, what's been done, what I'm going through. More often than not, we struggle with patience because we cannot fathom how the process could produce anything good. Is that true? Is that, is that true for you? Guys, it's as if James knows this and he anticipates we're going to say this because we're all the same. I think James probably struggled with the exact same thoughts when he was going through these trials as well. And so what does he do? <laughs> this is so funny to me. He says, I know you're, going to, I know you're thinking this. I know what you're going to say. So I want you to think about the prophets. And I want you to think about Job. Think about the prophets. Think about Job. Look back at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, 
Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Okay, now that word blessed is so important in the Bible because it's the New Testament's equivalent to the Old Testament idea of shalom. And shalom is total peace. It's total fulfillment. It's total joy. It's what we're all on our way to in heaven. Shalom, just a state of contentment that flows out of intimacy with God. That's what the word blessed means. Now, if you know anything about the prophets and you know anything about the way they lived their lives, you would know that their lives don't look anything like we would describe as blessed. In fact, I, I just happened to look up the hashtag blessed on Instagram this past week to see what we think it means to be blessed. There are 144 million posts with this hashtag. And it's margaritas, and it's friends, and it's concerts, and it's prosperity, and it's sunsets and beaches, and it's happiness. And I promise you not a single one of them looks like the life of any one of these prophets. For example, think about Isaiah. God, God shows up with Isaiah. And he's like, hey, man, I got, a, I got a job for you. Isaiah's like, sweet, what you got for me? And, and, I, and God's like, listen, I want you to go preach to this people for like 20, 30 years. They're not going to believe a word you say. They're not going to listen to you. They're not even going to notice you. All right, have fun. Isaiah's like, wait, wait oh, I, you're cutting out, God. You are breaking up. I only heard the first half. I heard the part where they don't listen. What happens after that? He's like, no, you heard me. That was it. All right, see ya. That's Isaiah. What? Think about Jeremiah. God goes to Jeremiah, and, uh, and he's like, listen, Babylon's coming. They're going to conquer. I'm going to let them conquer. I need you to go preach to my people that the end is near and that they're going to get punished. They shouldn't go to war. They should surrender because they're going to get overtaken anyways, and war is just going to lead to more death. So tell them to surrender. All these other prophets are going to say the opposite. You need to tell them the truth. By the way, no one's going to listen to you. So Jeremiah does that. No one listens. They hate him. They go to war. They get conquered. Lots of people die. And then they get taken into exile. And all of these false prophets are like, don't worry, guys. Don't build houses. Don't start families. We're not going to be here that long. God's going to rescue us. And God comes to Jeremiah and he's like, hey, I need you to tell them I'm not rescuing them. I need you to tell them that they need to submit to the pagan devil-worshiping kings. And I need you to tell them that they need to build houses and they need to start families and they need to pray for the city and they need to bless the city. And, and um, no one's going to listen to you, by the way. Have fun. Jeremiah's like, come on, man. Like, God, not man. Come on, God. They, they, they're going to think I'm a traitor. I'm gonna, you want me to go tell them to submit to the devil-worshiping king and to build houses that God's, Yahweh Elohim is not going to rescue them? They're going to kill me. Yep, that's exactly what I want you to do. So his friends hated him. His family hated him. Jeremiah 11, people are trying to kill him. That's the job. Till the very end of his life, Jeremiah was miserable. He's called the weeping prophet. He's just in a cave. There's no light at the end of that tunnel. Think about Hosea. God goes to Hosea. Says, hey man, I know you're trying to be a good prophet, but you can't be a good prophet until you figure out who I am and what I'm like. So I want you to marry a woman who's going to commit adultery over and over and over and over and over again. So you're going to marry her, and she's going to keep cheating on you, and she's going to keep humiliating you, and she's going to keep running your name through the mud, and she's going to keep breaking your heart, and you're just going to keep forgiving her over and over and over again so that you'll know what I'm like, and you'll know how this is what Israel does with me, but I always forgive them. All right, have fun. Then you got Job. He's like, think about the prophets. And we're like, okay. And they're blessed. It's definitely not hashtag blessed, but they're blessed. And then he's like, that's not all. Let's take it up a notch. You remember that guy, Job? Think about Job. Now, whenever you're suffering, the last thing you want to do is think about Job. Because it makes you feel bad for feeling bad. Job literally went through hell on earth. Satan shows up in the divine council, challenges Job's character before God, and God's like, all right, do what you want. 
He loses his kids, he loses his wealth, he loses his health, loses his servants, eventually loses his wife with no explanation whatsoever. In fact, even when God shows up, and it's really powerful, God doesn't explain why. God just explains who. <laughs> he, he's literally like, Job's asking all these why questions, and then God's like, who do you think you are and who do you think I am? That's the, that's the answer. No, no answer for the why at all. James says, I want you to think about these people. I want you to think about how they endured. I want you to think about how they were patient in suffering. And I want you to remember how we see all of them as blessed. And I want you to remember how we see the purpose of the Lord through their lives. Do you see that in your text? That's what he's saying. So this is what you and I need to understand, guys. None of those men could see any good fruit at the end of the process. God's taken them through hardship. They have no carrot dangling in front of them. It is a dark cave, no light at the other side, and they are just going through it. That's the prophets. That's Job. There was no logical explanation. There was no expectation of a positive outcome that they could hang their hats on, so to speak. There was no promise of any kind whatsoever of a bountiful harvest that would be produced in their lives that they could call shalom. Nothing like that. God just told them what to do, and they had to do it. Now, in chapter one, we talked about trials, and I talked about running and training and conditioning for soccer, and I talked about how hard it was, and how brutal it was because our coach was a jerk. But as hard as it was, I always had game day in my sights. Like Tuesday was always coming. Thursday was always coming. I could see the good that the suffering was going to produce. I could see it incrementally as I got faster and stronger and I could run for longer. I knew it was producing fruit in me. And sometimes that is true in life. Sometimes you're going through something and you can see ah, this is making me a better person. And, and there's something about that, like that insight that God gives you and he tells us to pray for that insight that makes it easier and then sometimes he does not give you the insight. Sometimes he does not give you the answer. He does not tell you what the harvest is gonna be. Sometimes we're like farmers who are waiting for the rain because we know what the rain will bring and then other times it's the opposite. You can't imagine how anything good could come from the pain you were going through. James knows that. So he says, think about Job, think about the prophets, because they couldn't see any good either. No hope, no expectation that anything good would come from their trials. But then he wants us to see that they endured. They suffered without retaliation. They dug their feet in. They they stiffened up their hearts. They set their eyes and their focus and they didn't lash out. And what James wants us, us to see is that even though they couldn't comprehend how their trials were gonna produce anything good, they actually produced good. They had no expectation of it. They had no hope of it. They couldn't fathom it. And yet God's plan is always accomplished for his glory and for your good. Every single time. If they decided to give up on him, lash out on him, retaliate against him, step off the path, rebel, remove themselves from the process, and not dig in their feet and endure, we would not know their names. And yet we know their names because they were patient. Guys, God could have told them how his process would lead to shalom and how it was going to take them deeper into their knowledge of him and intimacy with him, and he didn't. And I want you to see this. One of the reasons he didn't do that was because he knew that you and I would be going through stuff that seemed impossible. And he wanted us to be able to look back on them and say, they went through the same stuff and they had no hope either. And look at what God did in their lives. Maybe he can do that with my life too. 
He wanted their stories to be included in his word. He wanted you and I to read it 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years later. Doesn't seem like he's working, but he, but he is. Even when it seems like he's not there, he is. Even when it seems like he doesn't care, he does. We've got a bunch of hummingbirds in our yard right now. They love our flowers on our trees, and they are the coolest little things in the world. And uh, if you've ever seen a hummingbird, you know that they, they fly so fast. And then when they get to the flower, it's like they just hover in midair. There's like an invisible chair in the air. And they're just like on the chair. And it looks like they aren't doing anything. It looks like they're not moving at all. And yet their wings are moving at 50 beats a second. And, and you're like, you're watching this incredible paradox. And, and, and it's this beautiful picture of how God works in the world. That on the one hand, it looks like he's doing nothing. He's just like, I don't know watching you go through whatever you're going through. And on the other hand, he is doing a billion things a second that you can't even fathom, that your eye can't grasp. And so sometimes we might get a glimpse, like we might see one thing, or we might see two things, you're like, oh, thank you so, so much, God, for letting me see that one thing you're doing in my life. He's doing a billion things in your life at all times. And, and he gives us the insight, and we pray for insight, and the more we pray, the more we see but he's always working, even when it looks like he's not. When we go through trials, whether it's someone cutting us off on the road or a child getting on our nerves or an unfaithful spouse or a loss of a job or a chronic illness or whatever it is, big or small, light or devastating, it might not look like God is doing anything, but he is always working. And he's always working to accomplish his plan for his glory and your good. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If you want to cultivate a heart of patience, if I want to cultivate a heart of patience, I need to remember that, okay? Second, third, sorry, finally. Don't get nervous. Finally, oh, it's all about the gospel. It always is. We cultivate patient hearts by reminding them that God's patience toward us is the only reason we can stand. Look at verse 11. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purposes of the Lord, but you haven't just seen his purpose. You've seen that he's compassionate, and you've seen that he's merciful as well. You see what's going on here? Patience isn't just about seeing that God has you in a process it's not even just about seeing that he's got a plan for your life that's going to be for your good. It's about seeing that you are daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, the recipient of his patience. You haven't just seen his purpose. You've seen that he is compassionate. You've seen that he's merciful. What does that mean? It means that when it comes to cultivating patience, it has nothing to do with looking within pulling up your bootstraps, trying harder, beating up yourself, biting your tongue, or knitting baby dolls. You cannot beat yourself or train yourself into becoming a patient person. The only way to develop a patient heart that is slow to anger, that doesn't retaliate or lash out, is to realize and constantly remind yourself that God is slow to anger with you. That he is patient with you. Every day you sin, every day you fail, every day you ignore his plan, every day you step off the path and you disobey and you rebel, every day you tax his patience, every day you test the length of that fuse. He never explodes. There's never a straw that breaks the camel's back with God toward you. There's never a final straw. There's never a, a match in the powder keg, so to speak. Minute by minute, hour after hour, day after day, God's showing us patience. I told the team before we uh, started this morning, 9.30, all the, the serve teams get together and we just pray together and encourage one another and 
I, I always marvel at this fact, and I shared it with them, thinking about how many times I sinned yesterday. I can't even count. I don't even know. I, who, who knows? God knows. Um, somehow I was allowed to go to sleep last night. Somehow I woke up this morning to the sunshine. I wasn't crushed in my sleep. Somehow I woke up this morning with new mercy. Somehow I woke up this morning with new grace. Somehow I woke up this morning with God's smile just beaming, his song singing over me. That's the patience of God. You have seen that he's merciful. You have seen that he's compassionate. And the more you see that, the more you will carry the song of patience in your heart. The more you realize how long his fuse is with you, the more you'll be able to be long fused with the people around you. In fact, if we're being impatient, it's because we aren't. We aren't fully grasping what we are experiencing from God even in that moment. Like if you just think about it, our impatience towards other people that wrong us is wronging God. Like even in that moment of impatience, we're rebelling against God and he's still patient with us. Like could we just grasp the depths of our sin and the heights of his mercy? That people are offending us in the smallest ways and we're lashing out and rebelling against him and he's not lashing out against us. How is that possible? How can he be so good? How can he be so patient? That leads us to the final thing I want you to see. It's all about Jesus. How do we remind ourselves of God's patience toward us? We always go back to the cross. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's the same word. It's the same phrase that James used when he said, establish your hearts. Jesus set his face. He resolved in his heart. He established. He dug in his feet. He knew death was coming. He knew the cross was coming. But he set his face toward Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to endure the suffering without retaliation. That's the cross. It is the patience of God on display. The reason that we can suffer without retaliation is because he suffered without retaliation and was vindicated. The reason that we can trust the process of God is because Jesus trusted it and was exalted. The reason that we can submit to the plan of God is because he submitted to the plan of God and was blessed. He received shalom. The reason that we can rest in the patience of God is because Jesus dug in his feet. He didn't turn back in the face of suffering and he showed us what the patience of God looks like. And he showered, it, he showered it on us. The more we remind our hearts of that, guys, the more we'll cultivate a posture of patience. The more we rest in the gospel, the more we meditate on the cross, the more we remember the love of Christ displayed for us on the cross, the more we'll display patience, carry it everywhere we go. And so again, like every single week, we turn our eyes to the one who was patient. We... Look to the one who endured. We marvel at the one who overcame. And then as we do it, we ask the Spirit to give us grace and strength so that we can follow in his footsteps. Amen? Would you stand? Would, would you respond and talk to the Spirit, ask for help, confess sin, thank Christ, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you afterwards. We'll be up front. Just respond privately where you are, and then we'll go to the table and we'll celebrate the cross together. Let's pray.